0: You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Good morning. I may be a stranger to some of you and others I've seen in other places, but I can't tell you how ominous it is to stand up here and preach God's word to you, knowing that I'm as broken as many of you, and maybe even more broken in some ways. One of the things that I'm always amazed of is that how broken we are, that God still loves us, that God still comes alongside us. In spite of our brokenness, he is always there. John has the the kids illustrate a sermon and as I contemplated my sermon this morning I said what what picture should I have them illustrate and the more I thought about that picture the more I kept on thinking about that old maybe not that old it was it came out in 1987 but it's that picture of where's Walda? Where is Waldo? You know, that guy with the, the red and white striped shirt and, and the big eyes glasses and the pom-pom on his hat? You, you ever seen him, kids? Have you ever looked for that on, on cereal boxes or in puzzles? Sometimes that's how I feel when, when I enter into the pulpit or go to other churches. It's not where Waldo is, it's where do I see Jesus in this sermon? Where is Jesus? When I pastored in North Dakota, there was a a placard on on the podium engraved into it, maybe even carved in. We want to see Jesus. So as I present this scripture to you today, what I want is I want you to see Jesus. So in the story that Jesus is going to tell us today, and everybody probably has heard about this story, What I want you to do is I want you to see Jesus in the story. So whatever you draw, however this comes to to fruition in your mind, whatever God lays on your heart, I want the center of the story to be Jesus. And that's just not for you kids. That's for all of us. Where do we see Jesus? When we go to different churches, where is Jesus in the teaching, in our lives? When we go to work, where is Jesus in this situation? Today I want us to open up our our Bibles to Luke, the 10th chapter, starting in verse 25. So if you don't have Bibles, raise your hand. I know the elders and the deacons will will provide them for you. But I want to read this scripture to you. So if you need one, bring one here. Otherwise, Luke 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to them, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you shall live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and he saw him, and he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and he saw him and had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, Go thou. And do likewise. So ends God's reading to us this morning. Let us pray. Father, we would see you in this parable. Jesus didn't pull himself. He did not draw himself out of this past parable. That's not why He said the story. He said the story that we would see the truth. And because we could see the truth in the story, we would see him. That you would no longer be hidden from our eyes in the crowd, but that we would see you for who you are. So, Father, as we look at these words and we study them and we contemplate their meaning, help us to see Jesus. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my God and my Savior. Amen. Probably of all the parables that Jesus has spoken, none, I don't think one of them, is more understood by people in American society. We all know about the Good Samaritan laws. We all know And sometimes we misknow what it means to be a good Samaritan. And I would agree, it is good, it is great to help people in need. Oftentimes we often hear, save for the grace of God, there go I. And that is so very true. But why do they say it? You see, I think they say it the same way that we see it in the passages, in, the, in our passage this morning. It's all about excuses. Do we really see there, by the grace of God, there go I? Or I'm so glad I'm not that person. Why are we saying it? Are we trying to justify our actions? What is it about the Good Samaritan that we're looking about? Is, is, are we looking at it because we want our own self-justification? Or what is that attitude that we have about ourselves that put us up on a place that's different, maybe even somewhat better than other people? Where do you see yourself? Who is your neighbor? During the time of the Judean ministry of Jesus, we're not exactly told where and when this story took place. We have a chronological order of what's happening, but we don't know exactly how how the time breaks. A couple of weeks ago, John took us to the rooftop where there were teachers of the law in the roof, and the, the house was packed, and the friends of that paralytic took off the thatched roof and the tile, whatever it took back then, and lowered that paralytic down to the feet of Jesus. And he told him to rise rise up, take up your bed, and walk. Well, if you look at that passage really, really, really closely, that man didn't do anything but obey what Jesus said. Was it his faith that healed him, or was it the faith of somebody else that did all the work that lowered him down so that he could obey Jesus' words and rise up and walk? I say that because this man that comes to Jesus may or may not have been in that crowd, But we do know that he knew about Jesus' teaching. And we do know that he at least heard about Jesus' ministry. In fact, the text calls him anamikos. That means an instructor of the law. Or in our day and age, a lawyer. And you all know what you think about lawyers. They are good at some things. They are really good at other things. And what are they really good at? They're really good at words. They're really good at twisting the meaning out of words. Have you ever been in a law room? Have you ever listened to TV about law cases? They really twist things around. And if you're the jurist or if you're the defendant, you got to really think carefully about the words you pick. Well, this lawyer does the same thing. I think there's a real important passage in this thing because who is your neighbor? Where's the focus? It's again that focus on what do you mean? What, what is or what does the word is mean? Who is my neighbor? Today I want to look in the passage at three, three particular things. Number one, our unwanted calling. What does Jesus call us to do that we don't want to do? Number two, who is our unwanted neighbor? And the last one, the one I hope we focus on, who is our unwanted deliverer? As we begin, we find that the lawyer comes to Jesus with a question. What do I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life. Isn't that, we always want that? Isn't that why we're Christians? We want to be able to live forever. And so that was his question. What do we do to inherit eternal life? But even behind that question is another question. Why does the lawyer ask the question? If you look in that first verse, verse number 25, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Did he wanna know what eternal life was or how to inherit eternal life? That's his question don't know what the text says. It says he stood up to put Jesus to the test. When somebody asks you a question, why did they ask you the question? Obviously, it's because we want the answer, right? Is that always obvious? Have you ever been at work where somebody asks you a question and they really didn't want to know the answer? They already knew the answer? Well, remember, this is a lawyer. You kind of have to look behind what's going on. In the Greek, the word is epirozo. It means to put to the test, to try, to tempt. That ring any bells? Who is the great tempter? What did that serpent do with Eve? In the garden, he put her to the test. In this case, the lawyer is trying to tempt Jesus, not in regard to sinning. Rather, how skillful is he in managing what he claims? Sure, the stories say that that he healed the sick, He sat and he discussed with the rabbis the teachings of the law. But how skilled is he? How is he going to handle this evaluation? The lawyer's motive betrays what's going on in the text. There's something deeper here. Is he really trying to get an answer? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Or is he checking Jesus' naivete? How good? How good is this teacher? Perhaps it was his intellectual pride. Perhaps it was the jealousy that he had by the following of Jesus. Um, His disciples, Jesus' disciples. We see this in other places, that that Jesus is constantly challenged. Jesus is challenged in his earthly ministry based on rendering taxes to Caesar. He's challenged on what is his opinion about divorce. He's challenged on the resurrection. He's requested to do some sign, and he gives them some sign about Jonah. He's questioned about people who are caught in their sin. Every one of these tests are the tests that we get taught and we get taunted with every single day. So what do you believe about this? The legal experts answer shows a lot of insight. In fact, he agrees with Jesus' own um, assessment of the Torah's essential meaning. Now, maybe some of you don't know what the Torah is. You have it in your Bible. The Torah is the entire law that Jewish religion is based on. And that entire law can be found in your Bibles in the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, we don't do much preaching about those books. But the whole law, even all the teachings, the book of Talmud, are the Jewish writings that interpret the law. And everything goes into very, very much detail. This is is the expertise of this lawyer. And Jesus says the essential message is this love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor. As yourself, you want to find that in your Bibles. You want to write down and note these things. You can find those in Deuteronomy six five, or Leviticus nineteen eighteen. And Jesus compliments the lawyer. You have answered correctly. Did the lawyer think that that was a compliment? If he was trying to test Jesus. Have you ever had somebody who knows so much more than you do that you feel like you're being spoken down to? So if somebody that you view yourself above, catch yourself, if you view yourself above gives you a compliment, how much of a compliment is it? If you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're smarter than them, and they compliment you about being smarter than than them, it's not really a compliment. In fact, it's an attempt at a jab. Jesus compliments him. The lawyer who has sought to test Jesus now is being tested and evaluated himself. We may not see it, but it's there in the text. And the lawyer knows it's there. Jesus' compliment is actually very remarkable. So often Jesus has had to deal with, and will deal with as you go through the text, the Pharisees whose understanding of the law is all out of proportion. It seems like it's very strict and very succinct. But it's out of proportion. It's somehow skewed a bit. It becomes a little bit legalistic. Have you ever found yourself like that? I think we find that a lot. Am I being legalistic in my interpretation? Or am I doing the right thing? Is this what God would want me to do? Or is it rigid? I have this thing happening as we speak in my own life. In my own family life, my children have had a long time of unemployment. And oftentimes, they find opportunities for employment in in ways that I just have a hard time dealing with. But God opens up opportunities for them in ways I wish he wouldn't do. And yet, he does it. And I pray and I trust that he knows best in each one of those situations. The Pharisees the same way. Jesus says that they strain at gnats, but swallow camels. Don't we have that tendency to miss the big picture? We swallow the camel, but we strain at all the little things that are wrong with it. How do we twist that around? Jesus wants us to see the big picture. He understands, so it would seem, that that justice and mercy and faithfulness are the things that the Pharisees neglect. The lawyer recites what Jesus has termed the great commandment. To love God and one's neighbor. To do this and you will live, is Jesus' reply to the lawyer's question. What must I do to be saved? But some of us, some expositors, interpret the passage about works righteousness. About salvation on doing the good thing. About being the good Samaritan. If I just reach out to others and be good to them that I'm going to be saved. Well, that seems to fly in the face of the gospel. What is the essential message of the scripture? Even better yet, read the first five books of the Old Testament. And for some of us, that's going to be really difficult. What is that central message? Do that without taking what Paul says in his letters about law and grace. Take that out of the equation for a moment and look at what the Torah says and then come back and import it back in. Somewhat different when you put that tension in. The lawyer wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? But the power of what the lawyer had just spoke must have come to realization very suddenly on him by his own words Jesus says he has answered correctly the heart of the law love your neighbor as yourself well then who is my neighbor who is your neighbor actually Who is your neighbor? Last week, John illustrated his sermon about our backyard and how all the flowers and the lovely things were sitting out in the front yard, but the backyard held the alley. And when I grew up where my backyard had an alley, there were other despicable things in the alley, like the garbage bin and the smells and the rowdy children And, oh, I could go on and on and on. And what's in our backyard? In fact, even worse, go outside the door. Didn't we just step in our backyard? It's not nice and pristine as everything is in here. And the people don't look as nice as everybody does in here. And I don't feel quite as safe as I do in here. And yet, Jesus asks us, who is our neighbor? For the Jewish person, they interpreted neighbor as the one who is near. So look around you, and who is your neighbor? Who are you sitting next to? That's the one who is near. It changes as you tweak up that microscope a little bit because the Pharisees kind of tweaked up that microscope a little bit, and they excluded ordinary people. So, all those ordinary people, you're not the unordinary people or the extraordinary people neighbor. You're just a little bit outside their parameter. Now, if you were in the Qumran community, and those are the people who saved those, those lost scrolls. They were a little bit more conservative yet. They had to be, you had to be baptized in the right way. You had to read the right things. You had to follow the laws in the right way. And they excluded the sons of darkness from who their neighbor was. So you see they can step a little bit further. Who, who would you think the sons of darkness are? Walk outside, pick them out. You can do it pretty easily. You won't do it publicly, but you can do it pretty easily because you know what those undesirable attitudes or attitudes are. The lawyer agrees with the understanding of the essence of the Torah to love one's neighbor as yourself, but what does he consider a neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Let's go back to his motive. His motive is to test Jesus. His second motive is to justify himself. So look at yourself, who is your neighbor? How are you testing? How are you dealing with self-justification? Figure it this way. Who do you want your kids to play with? Who don't you want them to play with? Why? What influence are they going to have on your kids? It's going to tell you who your neighbor is really, really quickly. What do you do for your neighbor? Who is my unwanted I want to add, rejected neighbor. Jesus responds, not directly. He gives a parable. Reread read the parable. The parable is about the road to Jericho. And if you understand the geography of Israel, the road to Jericho goes down from the mountainside down into the valley oh, probably a little bit light, maybe a little bit more grandiose than hillside down to downtown, okay? Down the track. Now, that may not seem anything. We all know about Jericho and how the Israelites marched around the Jericho wall seven times and it fell down, and then they marched up to the Jordan River, built an altar, and then walked through the water and started their conquest of Israel. So that has a marking, but what we don't see so much is what else is significant about Jericho. And what's really significant about Jericho is that the Levites, and the, the, the priests, it was kind of like their retirement village. They would do their term of service, and then they would go down to Jericho, and so there was an entourage of, of righteous people in Jericho. This traveler is going down to Jericho, and all the newspapers of his day would have said, be careful, don't go to your mule alone. There's, there's, rabbit that, there's robbers and bandits there, but this guy's going, and he's traveling alone, Scripture says. Now, you can imagine Jesus is telling this story, and it's a story. It's not about a factual event. It's a story. So a story is going to illustrate a point. Same with a parable. It illustrates a point. He goes down to Jericho, where he is... Verse 30. He is stripped of his clothes... Beat and left for half dead. Now, they say theologians, Josephus and others like that, that Jer- that road to Jericho is known for those kind of things. So this just didn't happen happenstance. We knew that this is happening. And if you know that there's beatings, and muggers, and crime going on at the mall. What are you going to do? I'm not going to have my wife go shop at the mall by herself. We're going to go in groups, right? But this guy's not going in groups, okay? So we can say, oh, he was stupid, he knew about this, he just did a dumb thing. Well, if he did a dumb thing, the result is just as dumb. He stripped, beaten, left for dead. But Jesus says, there are three people that pass this guy by. There's a priest. Now, think about today who we would consider our priests. I I work with them, a bunch of them. You can tell them they have little white collars. Okay? They're priests. Okay? They had priests there. You all know about the rumors that clergy has. And it's funny. About the sins that clergy commit, they're just like ours. But if they're clergy, they're really hypocrites. Okay? Same thing goes to the attitude with people in that day and age. The priest walks by and you can just about see it. Instead of walking by the man and looking at him, he crosses over to go to the other side. Now, there may be some justification in that. Because when we read about the Levite, the Levite, sorry Bill, Bill's looking at me, but but the Levite is like the elders and the deacons in the church, okay? So, like the priest, but a little bit different. They're they're the top of the Jewish economic class, and he he does the exact same thing. Well, why wouldn't he? His example just did the same thing. Walks across to the other side and leaves them there. But now we have the third example. Now the third example needs a little bit more unpackaging. Because the Samaritan is not just any old person, OK? The Samaritan is a half-breed. He's half-Jewish and half-Gentile, OK? now. To understand why they're called Samaritans and what's happening is you have to go back to the Old Testament at the time of Elijah. And at that time, and maybe even before, the kingdom was split under Rehoboam. And the northern tribes, they worshipped on the hillsides and the southern tribes went to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. But those that were worshiping on the hillsides were not as righteous as those that went to the temple. And as time went on, they tended to be excluded. They believed the Torah. They have the same religious teaching. They just didn't do things the same way. So therefore, if they don't do things, they're not part of us and they're excluded. In fact, they didn't keep themselves pure ceremonially. They didn't marry the right women or they didn't marry the right men. And then they had children. And then they had children. And then it keeps corrupting. Sin spreads itself rampant. That's what happened. When Elijah comes on the scene shortly after, or about 400 years before this. But when Elijah comes to the scene, he goes to worship on Mount Carmel. Okay? And the priests of Baal are slicing themselves, wanting God to send fire down to heaven and consume the the sacrifice. And then Elijah does the same thing. He doesn't slice himself, but he prays that God will consume the sacrifice. Elijah does one thing more, he soaks the sacrifice. Now, if you use dry wood, it goes up pretty good, but if you soak the wood, it's gonna take a while to fight. You know what, the dry wood of the prophets of Baal, it didn't light, It, it didn't start. But Elijah's sacrifice soaked, the fire consumes it, and that day, Elijah wins a great battle and the Israelites come in and slay all those false priests. But that doesn't stop anything. The Samaritans still worship there. Baal still keeps its its syncretistic views. Israel keeps on blending things and we have the captivities and we have a whole lot of other things happening. And yet this group of people continues to live on and syncretizes the Old Testament. So the Jews didn't think much because they were pure. They didn't think much of this this group of people that were marrying and intermarrying and not really following the law. In fact, we do the same thing. In the 50s and 60s, we have a group of people that we won't affiliate, especially if we're in the south. We won't go to church with them. We can't live in the same neighborhoods with them. My, my grandparents, my uncles and aunts, grew up in Baton Rouge. And they didn't like it when a certain kind of people moved into their near- neighborhood and they were constantly talking about, well, there goes the neighborhood. Well, that's changed a little bit in our day and age. But not an awful lot. We still exclude people. We still have an issue. We can look around the room and most of the people are just like us. Is it because they're not wanted? No, it's not because they're not wanted. But they're not here. What causes that? Are they wanted or unwanted? How do you make someone feel wanted? How do you come alongside? First the priest walks along the other side. Now the Levite walks along the other side. Now the Samaritan comes, but he doesn't walk on the other side. Would you expect him to? No, probably not. He's not like us. He's different. But he comes up to the other Jewish person and he binds their wounds. He picks them up and puts them on his own donkey. And he brings them to the inn, he attends them, and then he has the inn take care of him and let him know whatever he expends, he'll pay for it. It's almost like he gave him a, black, a blank check. Now, remember that this person knew that the person he was picking up didn't have much use for him. And I thinking of myself saying, if I know that this is not a person I'm supposed to hang around with, and I would see him in my condition, I would tell him, go ahead, pass me by. I don't want your help, I might be sick here, I might be bleeding. If you go back to the Old Testament, If you see a a carcass of a dead animal and you pick it up to put it on the road, you're unclean. So the priests and the Levites, they may have some biblical warrant for not picking up somebody that was dead or close to dead because the scripture says they're not supposed to do it. Well, apparently the Samaritan didn't take that at its word and he picked this person up, he bound its wounds up and took care of him. And can you imagine the response of the audience when Jesus tells him, why would they do such a thing? Why would they care for this destitute person? Well, the scripture tells us to. We have to make a hard decision here. What is that decision? When do you take care of somebody, and when don't you? How do we deal with this? We're not supposed to pick up a dead body. But when does a body become dead? How do I deal with that in a hospital setting? When nurses tell me he's dying, okay? When is the person actually dead? When they don't have a heartbeat? When their brain stops functioning? When can I care for him, and and when do I need to leave him alone? How many times does somebody be non-responsive? Oftentimes, I talk to people who have a tube down their throat. They maybe can't even look at me, or maybe they can look at me, but they can't talk back. What do you do with this person? How do you deal with this person? How do you care for this person? Do I touch this person? Anybody clamoring for touching dead people? None of us want to do that. It's not fun. Because we're scared. Because we can be like that too. He bound him. He picked him up. Your enemy picked you up and bound you and took you to a place, fed you, paid for you, gave the person a blank check to take care of what you need. This is your enemy. This is not a friend. This is somebody that you just went out on the street and saw them and took them in. The Greek word That is used in this passage is Elias. Elias is that emotion that's aroused after an affliction comes upon you. In the Hebrew, the word is Hesed. Elias in the Greek, Hesed in the Hebrew, and it means loving kindness. In the Greek, it's translated mercy. Our kids play games. Mercy, mercy, don't hit me. Don't, I'm, I'm free, I'm safe. Do we play those same games? Who, who do we think of when we call for mercy? Is it the thief that's convicted of a crime and asking the judge to have mercy on it? Or is it you and me? because we're caught in our trespasses and our sins and we feel the weight and we plead to God for mercy it's the same feeling I have standing here in front of you and knowing how broken I am and how unworthy I am to speak God's words and I'm asking you have mercy on me because I'm as guilty as any one of us of not showing mercy, not showing loving kindness, of being biased. Who is my neighbor? Jesus told him in answer to his question of what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says these words in verse 37, go and do likewise. Who is your enemy? Are Christians nothing but do-gooders? Do we do good to our enemies? I think we have problems with that. I think that we stay in safe areas. We keep our kids in safe areas. We don't Connect with people who are not in safe areas. The disciples in Matthew 13 asked Jesus, why does he speak in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has... More will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear. What is it that we do not hear in this parable? Where is Waldo in this parable? Where is that red and white, white shirt? Is, where is he lost in this room? Where is Waldo? Where is Jesus in this passage? I think we see Jesus in that he is our unwanted neighbor. He is the one that Isaiah tells us was despised and afflicted, who was beaten But yet, by his wounds, we are healed. He is the one who is beaten by our sins, who bore our sins on the cross, yet he's the one who picks us up. We are his enemy. Sure, we are saved by grace. Now, because he's bound up our wounds and he's in the process of healing those hurts and pains, and I think that's perpetual. Perpetual. That our sins never are fully extracted in this life and we're just waiting for glory. Where when he will bind our wounds and he will hold us and we will be with him forever, then we will be healed. But right now, we deal with this brokenness. And the reality is we need to be transparent to realize that we are broken. That we are not better than our neighbor. That our neighbor is the one that Christ died for. And this is the example that he sets for us. That we are to be like an enemy. Have you ever felt like an enemy in our culture? Who is our enemy? Is it ISIS? Is it Al-Qaeda? Is it members of the gay coalition? Who are our enemies? Who wants to hear the message of the gospel? I work with a bunch of chaplains. Even they don't want to hear the message of the the gospel. My whole occupation and career is be careful when you speak the gospel because it can cost you your position. So how do you temper that when you're at work? Do you just shut up? Or do you speak the gospel? Or be like the Samaritan demonstrate it. Isn't it better to live than to speak? Yeah, there are times that you need to speak. But you know what? Scripture tells us that God will give you the words at that time. Just look at the book of Acts when Paul and John were called to speak to the priests and the Levites and the religious leaders and God gave them the words to speak and their conversation was flawless they were men like you and me men and women like us and God gave them the words to speak we're called to not just live in our front yards we're called to live in our backyards to go and mingle in the backyards That doesn't mean we clean up our backyards to make them look like our front yards. That means we go to a place where the world is comfortable and come alongside. To walk with. To let them see that we are different because of why? Because the good Samaritan has come and bore our sins and has taken them away, and they are removed from us. That we are not a product of this world. But we have been changed. Does that mean we feel changed? Does that mean we always look changed? Does that mean that we're broken? Five years ago, I had a stroke. I couldn't use the left side of my body. I couldn't get words to come out my mouth right. I had a phase of very, very bad, but God used that brokenness, and he has given me the ability to not be bound by it quite as much as I was, and there are days, and there are opportunities where I see my brokenness, just like we see the skeletons in our closets, and those skeletons, they don't stay in the closets. They keep on falling out we need to be honest with them and we need to be honest with one another that you know what you may look at me like I've got it all together but I don't you can talk to my wife and I and we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for this church and you might say what in the world did we do and I'd have to say probably nothing but you were there You were Christ to us. You were like the good Samaritan. You weren't better than us. You were one of us. You were touched by grace just like we were touched by grace. Just like that grace can touch anybody outside our front yard. Timothy Keller tells us, Tolerance is not about not having beliefs. It's about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. I have a son who disagrees with me just about all the time. You know, it's very different to be tolerant of your own children than it is tolerant of people I work with. I have this view that chaplains do this for a particular reason. That view is vastly tainted and vastly wrong. I have no idea why some of these people do what they do. Jesus tells us, how then shall I call on him who had they have not believed And how are they to believe of him of whom they have never heard? And how are they here without somebody preaching to them? I don't like that word because of the connotation of it. I can't really preach at someone, but you know exactly what I'm saying. We don't preach to our children because they won't listen to us either. We have to live it by example. That is preaching. We have to live it in our words. That is preaching. But it's not pointing down to them. It's pointing up to Christ. Because he is the one who has done it for us. Let me close with these words. The gospel says, and it's written again by Tim Keller. The gospel says that you are more sinful and more flawed than you ever dared believe. But in Christ, you are more accepted and more loved than you ever dared hope. He is the one who picked you up and put you on his donkey and took you and gave the innkeeper a blank check. Thank God for a savior who looked beyond our sins and our weaknesses and in spite of them called us to himself that he could be our healer. Let us pray. Father, oftentimes the parable of the good Samaritans is something that we think we need to do and we need to be like. And if we would do these things, it would be great. But the parable of the Good Samaritan we have learned is not just about what it means to help others. It really is about being like the traveler on the side of the road, left for broken and dead, bleeding and bruised. And in spite of that, coming and coming alongside the one who is broken on our behalf who was beaten by us and yet delivered us and holds us close. Father, thank you. Help us be more like Jesus. Help us see Jesus in these events. Help us to see how God wants us to emulate his son in the world and in the backyards he's given us. And for those things, we will be grateful, and we will sing, sing your praises from now and throughout eternity. For Jesus, and in his sake alone, we give you thanks and praise. Amen.